Good evening. It is good to see such a wonderful crowd of folks here tonight. Obviously, didn't read the bulletin, so you were speaking tonight, but I'm glad you're here, and we're glad to have you. A couple of brief announcements real quick before we get started. I do want to take this opportunity to compel you to get a VBS sign and put it in your yard. Everybody has a yard here, has no excuse not to take one. And please get one out of the lobby. The sign and the stand will be separate uh, for a little bit of ease you putting in your car. But please take that home and advertise it and be talking about VBS to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family. We have plenty of room for children to come and hear accurate testimony about the Word of God because they're not going to get that just anywhere they go. And I encourage you to enroll your children online at our website. There is a link to click on that. We desperately need you to do that as early as possible so we can plan for crafts and activities and snacks and all those things that will be going on. I'm so thankful to all those of you who have volunteered to help with Vacation Bible School. I'm so thankful to the ladies that are helping organize and coordinate that. It's tremendous work. It takes a tremendous amount of effort. We began working on VBS in January. Uh, so there's been a lot of work going to this VBS, the amazing race of faith. Look in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and the characters are in. So please be advised of that. Something that will help us out as well, the house-to-house, heart-to-heart in the upper fellowship hall after service. Kevin and Amy need help putting that together, getting that ready for a mail-out. I understand that it has our VBS announcement in it. So please help with that so that we can get that out to everyone in this zip code about our Vacation Bible School and support that. One other thing, for a little bit of clarification, and we apologize that perhaps we have not made this as clear as we should regarding the pictures. Uh, Some of them were taken this morning, and there'll be four other Sundays, not next Sunday, but there'll be four Sundays, more Sundays scheduled. You'll be notified by the bulletin, by the pulpit, by the messenger when those pictures will be taken. And those pictures are for... You have not, if you do not have a picture, if you're a new member and you don't have a picture in Family Tree, you haven't had your picture taken yet, you haven't coordinated that through John Michael, that is a reason for you to go take your picture. If you have had a significant change in your family with your children or your spouse, it is time to go get that picture made. If you simply want to brush up your hair and get a new picture made, we're kind of wanting to hold off on that until we get all of our new members, all of our significant changes done and placed in that so we can get in family tree for a staff, for the elders, for Bible class teachers, for the deacons. It's so helpful to be able to type in a name and a picture come up because with 1,051 people in worship on Sunday morning, it's very difficult for us to know everyone's face. So we would appreciate it if you do those things. If you're a new member and you have had a picture taken recently, and it's in family tree there's no need for you to do anything and so just keep that in mind watch your bulletin watch the messenger there will be some more mornings to do that those of you that did your picture this morning you did absolutely nothing wrong we're thankful to have that picture and thankful to have that done and we apologize as a staff for not maybe making that as clear as we possibly could have what a wonderful singing we've had tonight it's so nice when we look at the scriptures and know that we're supposed to be thankful to God and we're supposed to teach and admonish one another. And I want to tell you that I was taught and admonished tonight through the singing. I appreciate Philip's hard work in doing that. And I want to tell him thank you. Philip has a difficult job dealing with our youth. A time, and we're going to look at Satan tonight in detail, and he is after these young people right over here. And I'm thankful for the effort that he puts into camp. So thankful that we've had 15 people put on Christ. That's awesome. That is awesome. I've been going here for 17 years at this congregation. That's the biggest thing I've seen in the summertime. Last year, we didn't baptize but 32 people as an entire congregation. So what a wonderful way to be here, getting ready to start in the summer and have that. And I appreciate all the effort that Philip has put into that. 
the care that he's done to manage 170 young people, and worse than that, he had to manage over 60 adults. It's a lot easier to manage the children, so he had to take them. We're thankful for those of you, though, however, that went and worked youth camp. I know it's a lot of tough times in that. And I look forward one day to entrusting my daughter's education as a youth to Philip, and I don't give that out very easily, and I'm thankful she has that ability. He has that ability. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tonight. We're going to look back a little bit in chapter 3 and put that in context. And I promise I'll be brief tonight. But we want to study and look at this. I encourage you not to stop your daily and weekly Bible study. Those of you that are here on Wednesday night, and I hope if you're not here that you'll make an effort to come. In auditorium, Jesse Robertson is going to be talking out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, he is a, uh, on the faculty at Freed Hardman University. He has a PhD, and he has great credentials and is a great speaker, my understanding is, uh, highly recommended by David Shannon. And I encourage you to be in here. Those of you that are adult Bible school teachers, this is specifically aimed at adult Bible school teachers. I know it's going to be tempting for everyone to go in there and you're certainly invited, but let's make sure our adult Bible school teachers, not just now, but any time, or if you're thinking about becoming an adult Bible school teacher, Andrew Phillips is going to be over in the upper fellowship hall addressing some things that we can learn as adult Bible class teachers. And those of you that know Andrew know that that'll be a wonderful time. A lot of intelligence. He holds a master's degree and pursuing another master's degree uh, in education and ministry and, and he is a great resource in training teachers. So please be sure and come to that. But also be reading in 2 Corinthians as well and we'll be trying to cover that a lot from the pulpit uh, as time permits. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in chapters 3 and 4. We're going to mainly focus in 4 but we have to back up and see a little something in chapter 3 about that. Paul begins to talk here inspired by the Holy Spirit about a veil. He talks a lot in these next couple of chapters about a veil. And he says it in very different ways. And it's so beautiful how he builds up the argument that he's about to make. He's obviously addressing some of the Jews in the audience in Corinth. And Corinth wouldn't have been a city where there was a prominent amount of Jews. It's a Gentile city. It's on the little isthmus that connects the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It's a famous city in ancient history. Uh, it's a crossroads of many things that happened between Athens and Sparta in ancient times. Beautiful city. Some of you guys, I think, that have been to Ukraine have toured through Greece on your way back. So a very important city in that time. But he was addressing here, obviously, because he uses the story of Moses, and he talks about the old covenant and the new covenant, the differences between the two of them. And so often we see that Paul has to do that in addressing these letters. But he talks a lot about a veil, and he builds up to something very important that we can apply today, even though if we're not talking about the difference between the old law and the new law, we'll see today and examine the one who puts that veil over our face. And we see the word veil appear in many places in the scripture. Those of you familiar with the Genesis account will remember when Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. He did not want to choose that from among the people that he lived one. So he sent her, his servant back to the homeland and say, please get a wife from my people for my son Isaac. And as Rebecca approached and Isaac was working the field and she saw him and I kind of picture Isaac as one of them guys on the cover of a romance novel. You know, he's probably real well toned out there working and Rebecca was excited to see him. She veiled her face as she approached him. So, you know, a veil in the Near Eastern world is not something that just came along uh, with the advent of Islam. The, the, the process of veiling a woman before she appears before a man or wearing a veil is thousands of years old. We see that example. Some say, some scholars think that perhaps when Leah was brought to marry Jacob, when he brought her that evening and tricked him into marrying Leah instead of marrying Rachel, that she may have been veiled. And that's why he didn't realize who that was. Now, the Bible doesn't say that in the Genesis account, but he brought her to her at night and that was covered. 
We remember Tamar, she tricked her former father-in-law, Judah, into committing sin by veiling herself and concealing her identity. And importantly, we remember the veil that was in the tabernacle. And also in Solomon's temple, we remember the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer place. And inside that Holy of Holies was stored the Ark of the Covenant. And only one time a year, the high priest of Israel would go in and offer up on that mercy seat blood to atone for the sins of the people. We remember that same veil as we approach the new covenant. As we approach the time of Christ, you remember that when Christ was crucified and died on the cross, that the veil in the temple was torn in two, taking away that barrier between God and man. Now, after the temple was rebuilt, the temple that existed in Christ's time, the Ark of the Covenant was not in that room. There was a stone that they went there and, and threw blood on and altered that because the Ark of the Covenant was never seen again after the Babylonian captivity. But you still had that veil, still only once a year the priest went in, and how beautiful the book of Hebrews is in comparing Jesus Christ to that high priest, that perfect high priest, who's opened up that veil to all Jew and Gentile, and not just on one day a year, but any day of the year, we can come before Christ, before God's throne through the blood of Jesus Christ. In our reading in chapter 3, as we begin to look in 2 Corinthians 3, we see Paul in 2 Corinthians as having to defend his apostolic authority. He's obviously been to Corinth. He's spent a great deal of time there. We see that in the book of Acts. He's already written one letter. We have evidence in the scripture of at least three letters to the church in Corinth. But he's talking to them there. And some people, it seems, are attacking Paul's ministerial abilities, his speaking ability, his authority as an apostle, and even the message that he's bringing. And we see as it begins in three, he defends that. It says, do we need as others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation for you? You are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but of the Spirit, not on tablets of stone, but on the flesh of the heart. And we remember, we think back to when we start talking about Moses and that veil that he had to put on his face after he came down from the mountain the second time, being up there 40 days and 40 nights and being in the presence of God, bringing down the two tablets that had the writings that God gave him on them. If you remember, God wrote two sets of tablets. The first one he carved out, wrote on and gave to Moses. But when Moses broke them, God made Moses go cut out the next two sets of tablets and then he had him write on there what he was going to do. So Moses has come down off the mountain, his face is veiled. So that's the comparison of the tablets of stone to the tablets on our hearts. No longer is that law valid. That's what Paul's beginning to build up here. He says in verse five that our sufficiency is from God. He don't, know his, he don't need his sufficiency from other people. And he begins to talk about the new covenant in six, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So Paul's saying, it's not your letters of commendation or commendations from men, it is God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the gospel. For us today, it is God that made us, made us sufficient as ministers of the gospel. He's given us his word, he's given us the commandment to do so, and he has made us in authority to share his new covenant. And he says, not of the letter, referring to the law, but of the spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, but the letter kills and the spirit gives life. He says in eight, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious than the law? He talks about as we go through chapter three, and sometimes I think we look at the law of Moses and we say it's some filthy thing, some despicable thing, something to be despised, and that's not true. God's word says it's glorious. It came from God, it was part of God's plan. It was part of the laying out of time until it was our tutor, the Bible calls us, until we get to the time of Christ. But he says in 11, 
For what, if, if what is passing away, meaning the old law was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. What's being brought to us as the gospel of Christ is much more glorious than the law. It provides so much more than that. But he goes back and he talks to the Jews here a little bit. And he says in 13, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face, the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. When he came off that mountain, his face shone brightly and he had to cover it up with a veil so the people would not be afraid to look at him. He says, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. In 15, he says, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But in 16, he says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. So Paul's building up to what we're going to look at in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And there can be no doubt, brothers and sisters, and those of you that are with us today that may not have put on Christ in baptism, there can be no doubt who is responsible for placing that veil over people's hearts, whether it's then when the Old Testament kept, the veil kept coming over their hearts and the reading of Moses, there's no doubt who was behind that effort, who wanted the Jews not to see the glory of the new covenant. There can be no doubt about it today for those of us who probably have heard God's word but we're stubborn in hearing it, we're stubborn in applying it, we're stubborn in making the decision to do the right thing in response to that gospel. There is but one being in this universe that is responsible for that and we'll see in chapter four that that is Satan. And we're gonna look real quickly in a few minutes about some things about Satan that we need to be wary of and some things that we need to speak frankly about about Satan in those ways. So we move into four. And we look down in three. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And that word veiled means to be covered up. And its Greek origin is the word klepto. It's associated word klepto, where we get kleptomaniac. It means to be stolen or taken away, something that is hidden from them. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And when Paul's talking right there, he's talking about those who are apart from the body of Christ whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. If you believe in the Bible, and you believe that it is the truth, the word of God that is authoritative, that it contains the words that we need to be saved, but you're unwilling to do that, you are an individual who does not fear God. You cannot claim to fear God and fear the wrath and right, unrighteous, the righteous punishment that he spelled out in this Bible and yet turn around and say, well, I believe it's God's word. I believe it's got the plan of salvation. I believe it's what I need to do to become a Christian. I believe that God is truthful, that he's accurate, that he's a righteous judge and he will do what he says. If you claim to do that, but won't make that decision, then you don't fear God. You can't possibly read the scriptures and see time and time again the example of God carrying out what he said he would do when his people disobeyed him and then claim to understand the scriptures but not yet be willing to follow through with what he says. The reason that that is is because Satan gives us stubborn hearts and he's called him the God of this world. Jesus Christ called him the ruler of this age. Satan is alive, he is well, he is not the cartoon character that you see with horns and a pitchfork and a spiked tail. 
He is the most evil and despicable person in existence in the universe, personality in existence in the universe. He wants these children over here to die and spend eternity in darkness with him in hell. He wants the small children that are sitting by you to suffer pain and agony and to not have good parents and to live a difficult life. He wants them to become addicted to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, to sex, whatever it is. He wants them to have sex outside of marriage. He wants them to have children outside of wedlock. He wants them to grow up one day and have marriages that end in divorce and fail. That's what he wants. And you say, Tim, well, you're speaking pretty freely about Satan there. And I thought, well, how do we get across what Satan has done, what kind of evidence we have? And I want to be careful in that because we see in the book of Jude that Michael, the archangel, was reluctant to bring an accusation before Satan over the body of Moses. And he said, the Lord shall rebuke you. So I thought tonight I'd make a little bit of an illustration. I know I'm not very good at illustrations, so I'm going to try and make an illustration. I'm going to use a chair. I know many of you have watched the news. A lot of times we'll see an individual on in the news that's arrested for a despicable crime, whether it's hurting children, whether it's killing someone as a drunk driver, committing murder, some sort of atrocity that we see. And it brings up all kinds of feelings of anger, right? We want that person to have vengeance carried out on them. We think he ought to be electrocuted. We think he ought to be put under the jail. Whatever statement it is. And I want to offer to you, what if I had Satan here sitting in this chair? And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious by saying Satan's sitting up here on the stage. What if I had this guy here and you were looking at him like you would look at one of those people in the news, one of those people that disgust you because of the things that he has done? But I'm going to offer you an opportunity to read some of the things that God's Word says because I, like Michael, are going to say that the Lord may rebuke you. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that Satan makes an effort to destroy man's relationship with God and he is successful when he deceives Adam and Eve into directly disobeying a commandment of God. He sees something beautiful, mankind and God in the same place in a harmonious relationship and his first priority is to destroy that. In 1 Chronicles 21, he deceives David into disobeying God and taking a census of Israel that results in punishment. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that this individual tries to destroy the mission work of Jesus Christ before he even gets started. And he tries to take advantage of Christ after he has fasted for 40 days. He's starving. He appeals to his human emotions, his human needs, and he tries to wreck the ministry of Jesus Christ before it ever gets started. In Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, it is this individual that takes away the seed that is sown from the hearts of people. It is the one that comes and steals away the seed. In Matthew 13, it says also that he sows wicked people, the tares among the wheat parable. This individual is sowing wickedness among us today. In Luke chapter 13 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we talked about the thorn in the flesh David did last week. This individual is a sign with giving affirmities to a woman for 18 years in Luke chapter 13. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, it is him that gets the thorn in Paul's flesh in doing that. He's becoming a very likable individual. His desire is to take away Jesus' disciples. John, Jesus tells Peter, the devil's going to come and try to sift you as sweet in Luke 22. And in Luke 22, 53, it's the power of darkness that drives the individuals that show up at the garden in Gethsemane. Who implanted the betrayal in Judas's heart? John chapter 13 says it's this individual that incited a man who ultimately wound up committing suicide instead of repenting of his sin, who put Jesus Christ in the hands of those who treated him and scourged him and put him on a cross. It's this individual that did that. 
as we go on through the church, who bred the lies in Ananias and Sapphira when they came and lied about the land that they'd sold? It is this individual that did that right there. In Acts chapter 13, as soon as Paul and Barnabas begin their missionary journey, their first step on the island of Cyprus, they're opposed by Elymas the sorcerer doing this individual's work. In 1 Corinthians 7, as it talks about married individuals depriving one another, and they get led away in temptation if they do that. It's this individual that encourages sexual sin amongst married couples. In, in 2 Corinthians 2, he exploits the ignorance about his working. We see here in our reading in 2 Corinthians, this is the individual that puts the blind over people's eyes, that he puts that veil over their eyes. A few more things if you'll bear with me. Ephesians 2 and 2 says that the sons of disobedience are at work in this world. That is from him. And Ephesians chapter 6, we talk about that armor of God. You have to put on the whole armor of God. From head to toe, you have to be protected from this individual here because he will find every chink in the armor. He will find every point of weakness. He is going to attack you like an enemy and try to kill you. Men don't wear armor in combat to keep themselves from having to have stitches. They wear armor in combat to keep themselves from being butchered to death. And that's what this individual is here to do. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, we see it is Satan that has hindered Paul from returning to visit the brethren in Thessalonica. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, spiritually immature elders will be led astray by this man right here. That's why new converts are not done. He's after the leadership of the church. 1 Timothy 5, how much more despicable can you get than to go after our poor widows? And that's what this individual will do and lead them astray. He takes people captive in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 5 describes this individual as a roaring lion. That child's very upset what I'm saying. A roaring lion, a vicious beast. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and Jude chapter 6, it said that his angels abide in darkness. I'm not making this up. And I wouldn't try to attack Satan head on, head on because I'm not wise enough, tough enough. I'm not strong enough. This individual has been around since the dawn of time, since before the dawn of time. And let me tell you how sick his mind is else we see in the scripture. What about in the book of Job? He goes before God for his own selfish reasons because I want Job to denounce God. There's a faithful and righteous individual here who's doing things right, obeying God. And you know what I want to do? I want him to denounce God. So you know what I want to do? I want to take away all his possessions. I want to murder his children. And I want to see him suffering doing that. And if that's not enough, after I see Job suffering the loss of his children, which any of you amongst us have gone through that, there is no more unbearable pain. It's something you never get over. This individual is writhing in pain over the loss of his possessions. I'm going to go back and ask God, can I do some more to him? Can I hurt him some more? Can I attack his body? I know you told me before I can't attack his body, so now I'm going to make boils and sores come up all over so he scrapes himself with pottery. I'm not satisfied this man's gone through the pain of losing his children. I want to attack him individually. That's what the Bible says about this guy. He is evil and despicable, and you better fear him. You better fear Satan. He is real, hell is real, and the darkness that is prepared for them is where Satan wants you to go with him. And I'm sorry to speak frankly tonight, but I think it's about time we did so. I think it's about time we did so. Who do you think it is that attacks a nation that prints in God and trust, we trust on its money, but yet they endorse the murder of unborn infants in the womb? 
that began to tout and destroy God's institution of marriage, but it's like saying it can be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, not the institution that God spoke in the beginning of the scriptures that he had planned. He enjoys that. The sweet savor and aroma of our worship that goes up to God, that's a pleasing aroma to him. You know what's a pleasing aroma to him? It's when selfishness destroys a marriage, when it destroys a parent, when children are murdered, when children are molested, when people are hurt. That's what this individual loves and he savors. You better be afraid, people. You better be afraid of this individual. He is out to destroy you. He's out to destroy those little babies sitting in your lap right now. And it's a dangerous thing. But there is some good news. I don't mean to all say things terrible. But I think we should be frankly about what he is. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 in your Bible. Because there is some good news. That veil can be taken away. It has been lifted away. That law of Moses was lifted away. And so is that veil that Satan has put over your heart. And perhaps even if you're a Christian, Satan's begun to blind you again because that's what he likes to do. And he's patient. He's very patient. How many years has he been attacking the church and trying to destroy the church? He's been doing it for 2,000 years and he's not going to quit. He doesn't have an end date yet. He hasn't been told when it's going to stop. It's not going to stop again until Jesus comes. And we see a promising thing in Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, talking about Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. We see from our Bible in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus has overcome death. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He faced death, Christ did, to take away that veil, to destroy the power of Satan. And I've said a lot of terrible things about this individual. But none of those things is over, not overcomable by a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of those things can be defeated by faithful living. They can't be defeated by faithful living without putting your nose in this Bible right here. Without writing God's word on the tablets of your heart and your flesh and having that knowledge. It can be overcome. All those terrible things that this individual I've described up here, they not have any power over you in eternity if you put on Christ in baptism and live a faithful life. And that's a difficult thing to do because he's going to be attacking us on every turn. What a beautiful and glorious thing the individuals that have put on Christ this past week. But they're going to be attacked immediately by Satan. Whether it's their friends in school, it's what they see on television, whatever they're led into. And they need you. They need you as their friends. They need you as spiritual leaders in this congregation. They need you to be a letter to them by living out the life of Christ and being an individual to them. Because Satan does not want them to live a faithful life. He wants them to fall away. And he wants them to spend time with him in that place that has been prepared for the devil and his angels where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and terrible punishment. That's where he wants you to go. That's where he wants our young people to go. But what a beautiful thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. And if you're here tonight and you believe the word of God and that you've heard it, and you know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way that we can come before the Father in heaven one day, I urge you tonight, do not delay that decision. The Lord's word says he is patient with us, and he doesn't want anyone to suffer doom with Satan, but there's only so much time. We're not promised that we'll make it home from church tonight. We're not promised that Christ won't come back even before we conclude speaking tonight. I urge you, let that veil be taken away. 
Don't let that shroud be over your heart anymore and open that up to Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you. God loved you enough to do that and God does not want you to spend that time with Satan. If you have become a Christian and perhaps your life has become in disarray, perhaps you've walked away from that belief, perhaps you're not spending the time in word and in fellowship with your brothers and sisters and in ministry and service to God, that can be changed as well. You can come before the merciful God of the universe who didn't have to show us mercy, who didn't have to show us grace, but he did by the giving of his son on the cross. And you can be restored from that. Tonight I urge you, if you know God's word and you know what you need to do, don't hesitate from doing it tonight. Here is water. There is nothing that hinders you and there's nothing magical about that water. It's that circumcision that God's going to do with the heart. If perhaps you need to study more about that decision, if perhaps today or through your life as you've heard God's word and you want to know more about that, don't hesitate. Find one of us ministers, find an elder, reach over beside you as somebody you know that's a Christian in this congregation and you ask them to help show you that way. But if tonight you're ready to make that decision, you need to make that change, 